0: Hello and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Definition of worship, God. You are worthy, worthy to be praised because you are the Redeemer. You are the one who has saved us. You are the one who has uh, brought us life, you have forgiven us of our sin, Lord, and so we say thank you. We come together to lift up the the name that is above all other names, Lord. We bow our knee, we confess with our mouths, Jesus, you are Lord. What a joy it is to worship you, God. What it is what a joy it is to come together as a family to to exalt our Father. God, I'm so grateful that you're here in our midst. Your Holy Spirit is here to guide us as we now study your word. And I pray uh, that we would have ears to hear what you would say to your church today, God. That we would walk in the ways that you have walked, Lord. And that as you are in the light, we also would be in the light. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. amen. 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 You may be seated, children. You guys are welcome to go to Sunday school. Like, we're out of here, man. It's enough singing already. Now that, now that we have some kids joining us for worship, I just wanted to explain again why we do what we do. I think it's extremely important that children are raised in the Lord. Uh, we see that most children give their lives to Christ before the age of 18. And one of the greatest things I think that we can do is, as parents is to demonstrate to them what it is to worship God. And so that's why children are in with us during the worship time, and that's why they will be with us. And so will they be a distraction at times? Certainly. Aren't kids a distraction at times? Yes, they are. But it's it's our job as a faith family to show them what it is to worship God. And so that's why I want them here in this room to see that. And so we just continually will strive to be an example to them of what it is to worship God. So hey, we're in 1 John chapter 2 once again today. Uh, I think we left off at about verse 11, so we will pick up at verse 12. And I typed in my password and spoke at the same time. Oh. So that's right to
1: stay down, because
0: that does not happen ever. Ever. That eye surgery. That eye surgery. Because the reason John that writes, he, throughout the epistle, John writes four different times why, why he's writing this. He gives four different explanations as to why he's writing this. Uh, and the second one that we came across, we studied last week in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Because I know I've shared this before. Have you sh- the word sin, what it actually means, it's an archery term. Uh, it's used in archery, and it means to miss the mark. Um, if you were pulling back an arrow, I don't know what the right term is for that, but if you were ready to launch an arrow and you had your bullseye where Brandon is, and I was aiming at Brandon. He's not paying attention, sorry. I <laughs> oh, he is. <laughs> um, you know, I had, I had my arrow pulling back at Brandon, and I shot my arrow, and I saw that it went toward Lily, I would yell, sin! Because what I'm saying is, it's missing the mark. And anybody need, everybody needs to pay attention, because there's a wild arrow out there. And so that's what the word sin means, it means to miss the mark. God has established a mark, and when we fall short of that mark, when we miss that mark, we sin. And that's where the term comes from John writes in chapter, or verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you, so that you may not sin. John wants the best for us. And the best is found in Jesus Christ and following his commandments. It's living out a holy life. And then he goes on to say, we covered this last week, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Love that title. If we do miss the mark, and you will miss the mark. When we do miss the mark, we have someone that comes to our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only is he our defense, he, he comes alongside us to stand before the judge to say, no, I bought this one with the, my blood. He stands in our defense, but he also became our propitiation, a big word that we don't hardly ever use. Did anybody use it this week? No. Just curious. I still got that five bucks. <laughs> If, if we were to use the word, He is our propitiation, meaning our portion of God's wrath, He has absorbed. And so that's what it is to be our propitiation. When we sin, our defense attorney comes to our side. And our defense attorney, attorney is also our satisfaction of God's wrath. And then the last thing we talked about was the best place to live is in His abode. It's to abide in His abode, uh, is to live with Him. And so, alright, that catches us up. Everybody with me? We found 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. I write to you, little children, and that word little children, you've got to remember John is 90 years old at this point, twice the normal lifespan he was Kentucky Fried John. They boiled him, oil. They put him in oil. Pa- they put him in password. They tried to kill him. It just didn't happen. He sticks around forever. He's the last known apostle alive at this point. And so he, he's writing and he says, All right, you little children. A term of endearment. But specifically here, he's speaking the, the term little children means born ones. All right, you little born again Christians, those that are saved. We we look at the physical life, and there um, there are four stages to physical life. You have little children, you have youth, you have eight, uh, adult, and you have, you look really nice. You <laughs> are right? the mature, as it were. John here is going to address not four stages of physical life, but the three stages of spiritual life. Little children, youth, and fathers, or the mature ones. Hear the titles as he addresses them and think spiritually, not physically. He's not saying, all right, you little kids. He's saying, you little children new to the faith, those just born, as it were. And he says, I write to you, little children, because... Your sins are forgiven, uh, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. What's one of the first songs we learn as a child in Sunday school? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what you learn as an infant in Christ. Jesus loves me. How do I know he loves me? He forgave me of my sin. And that's when we first give our lives to Christ. That is the most overwhelming, wonderful thing. And hopefully we carry that through all of our Christianity. But it's just, it consumes us. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. What a glorious thing. You know, Jesus loves me. As a newborn in Christ, we're forgiven. And that's wonderful. Verse 13. I write to you, fathers, now he addresses the mature, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Those mature in the faith, you've been walking with Him for a time. Certainly, John fills this category. And he tells us, he addresses us, you know God. It's good for us to remember. We know Him. It's not good just to know of God. It's good to know God. It's not just a matter of a head knowledge of Him. But I know Him intimately. I've walked with Him for a long time. He and I have Walk shoulder to shoulder for many years now. That's what it is to be a father in the faith. We strive to know him, and as we grow in faith, just to know him is enough. It's interesting when you talk with people that have walked for 40 and 50 years in the faith, and just how how simple their faith is. I just want to know him more. You know, you hear that from them. It's as if our life becomes simplified. We know him. And then he says, I write to you young men, those that aren't just born and those that aren't quite yet full of faith or are mature in faith, I write to you young ones because you have overcome the wicked one. The young ones are the ones whose faith isn't brand new, but it isn't fully yet mature, but it is strong. The young ones are our strong ones. How strong are they? He tells us. They've overcome the world. They've overcome the wicked one, rather. They're not tossed about by every doctrine any longer. It's not, the wind isn't beating them up any longer. They're not straining against the simple things. They've accepted those and have grown in the faith. Think about this. Who do we send into battle? We don't send our infants. We don't send our old men. We send our young men into battle. Why? Because they're the strong ones. Same is true in the Christian walk. They're the strong ones. Their faith is... Is strong. They've overcome the wicked one. And this looks like now, as you continue reading, perhaps that the the person that was writing out the scriptures just repeated a paragraph. Did you ever do that when you were writing a, a like a science report or whatever, and you were recopying it so that it was nice and neat, and and you realized like halfway through, I've written this sentence before, and you look and it's like the line above it. And you've got you know you've repeated a whole paragraph. It looks like a repeat. He says again, I write to you little children because you have known the Father. Now what's interesting is in verse 12, he uses a word that says born ones. In this verse, he now says a different word for little children. And it's the, it's the implication that those, it would be those who are under instruction. I write to you those that are still learning. John here reminding them of who they know. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. Hey, remember, you know the Father. you got to remember, one of the reasons John is writing this letter is to combat Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that there's a greater knowledge out there that you have to find in order to become a true Christian. And he says, no, little children, you know enough. You know the Father. John says, even the little children have all that they need, and that is to know the Father. There is no greater knowledge in Christ than to know Him. He goes on to say in verse 14, I've written to you fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Those fathers, those who have been in the faith longer, the more we know of Him, the more we know Him, the more we love Him, the more amazed we are with His character. I was reminded of the song by Graham Kendrick just simply called Knowing You. I looked up the lyrics this morning and I was like, oh, this is, this is such a great reminder. As we grow as the fathers in the faith, this is what we hold on to. The, the lyrics to the song uh, Knowing You by Graham Kendrick, All I once held dear and built my life upon, all this world reveres and wants to own, all I once thought gain I've counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this, and the chorus is, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing, you're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you incredibly simple. Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and be conformed to His death, Philippians chapter 3, that I know Him. Paul is certainly a father in the faith, yes, he's a mature one in the faith at this point. And he says, I count it all loss, everything is rubbish, he Prior to that in Philippians chapter 3, he gives a a great resume of everything that he has accomplished. And he says, all those things are rubbish to me that I may gain Christ. He goes on to say in what verse are we on? 14? Mm -hmm. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. He says something very similar, but he adds the Word of God abides in you. Young ones, you are growing. Your faith is maturing and you are strong. And the reason you're strong is because the Word abides in you. Know where our strength comes from, Christian. It's in knowing Him. It's in knowing His Word. It's how we endure the attack. And so I have to ask the question, are you spending time in His Word? Are you filling your soul the way that we fill our flesh? I ask, you know, in the same way that we feed our bodies three, four, five times a day, our my dancers eat all the time, we need to fill our spirit as well, going to Him. Here's a litmus test for you. I thought of this this morning. The very first thing you do when you wake up, do you reach for your phone or do you reach for your Father? Do we reach for our phone first or do we reach for our Father first? I reach for the app on my phone so I can study the word. We always look for loopholes, don't we? <laughs> so long as you're not checking Facebook before you version, I suppose you're doing the right thing. that's a great test for us. How do we study his word? Do we absorb him? Do we read the word of God? That's how we become strong. Then he goes on to say in verse 15 this is emphatic the way he says it do not love the thi- the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him there's it's just there's straight it's cut and dry if the love of the world is in him the fa- the love of the father is not he emphatically states do not love the world and it literally means it, it's saying this stop considering the world precious that's what that means do not love the world and it's assuming we do because we do we fall into the trap all the time it's assuming we already struggle with considering that the world is precious and we're drawn by the shining things of this world but there's a far better world to be a part of do not love the world now wait a minute john are you talking out of both sides of your mouth here? Didn't you say in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here you're saying, don't love the world. You want me to be like Christ who loved the world, but you're telling me don't love the world. What is He saying? Is there a contradiction here? No. In John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, He's speaking of humans, the humanity. God so loved the seven billion people on the earth present that he gave his only begotten son. What he's speaking of here in chapter 2 of 1 John is, do not love the system of this world. Do not love the, as Paul would say, the pattern of this world. He's not referring to humanity as he was in 3.16. He's speaking of the way of this world, the things of the world. Think of your advertisements. I've actually been watching a little more TV this week than I normally do because the Olympics are on. Watch the Super Bowl Sunday night. You know, some people watch the Super Bowl for the game, Some people watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. Some people do both. And then the Olympics came up. And speaking of, did you guys watch the opening ceremonies yes. at all? The whole drone thing? 1200, if you haven't seen the drone part of the opening Olympics, uh, the opening ceremonies—it's incredible. 1,200 drones flying through the air, working in tandem to form a snowboard, and then the Olympic rings. It's—it it was powered by Intel, and it was mind-blowing. It just—I watched it a couple dozen times, I think, since Thursday night. Phenomenal. I love the Olympics. Why do I love the—I'm going on a tangent here. I recognize that. Sorry. Time out for just a second. I love the Olympics because. What it shows us is what a person can accomplish when they devote themselves to one thing, right? The Olympic athlete has devoted their lives to their sport. You look at Michael Phelps, he's in the pool seven days a week for six to eight hours a day. His life was around swimming. You look at you know, Olympic hockey players, Olympic skiers, they are on the slopes every day, that's what they do. And you see what can be accomplished when you devote your life to one thing. I want to have an Olympic passion for Jesus. To give everything that I have so that I so that it's all for one thing for Jesus Christ. It inspires me not to be a curler, because Lord knows I couldn't do that well. <laughs> that was fun though. But it gives me a passion for Jesus. Think of the advertisements that we watch. Everything is all about what you need right now. It's the system of this world to the max. And it's feeding on the system of this world. And what John is saying is, these two loves cannot cohabitate. You either have a love for the world, or you have a love for Christ. They cannot, you cannot mix them together. You can't have fresh water and salt water in the same cup. It's slightly less salty fresh water. Right? You can't have both. The two loves cannot cohabitate. It's either one or the other. In verse 16, is, if you've walked with Christ, if you've read through the Bible, you're probably familiar with this verse. This is the one I would put a star next to today. John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So John here, for us, defines what the world system is. He tells us, this is the world system. All that is in the world, what's all mean? All means all. All means all, that's all means. The system, what's in the world? For all that is in the world, this is the system. It's, it falls into these three categories. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If the Philadelphia Eagles opened their playbook on Sunday to the New England Patriots, and the Patriots would probably try to look, (laughs) and all they had were three plays, they would be pretty easy to figure out, right? If you had a pass left, a run up the middle, or a sweep right, and that's your playbook, that would be fairly easy to figure out. Well, John is telling us that's all Satan has. He has three plagues. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now I'm going to go through some other scriptures to show you that that's the case. Satan has three plagues. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to start in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 4. So if you got your Bible, flip all the way back to the beginning. Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3. This is the fall. This is when Satan comes to visit Eve. I'm going to show you that what Satan uses is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Hang on to those terms if you haven't heard them before. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Got it? All right. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now time out there for just a second, because this is interesting to me. We know that this is the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that God did say, Do not eat of that fruit. He did not say, God did not say, Do not touch the tree. The woman here inserts more instruction than what God gave, and she says, you shall not touch it. Why did she say that? I think it probably went something like this. Adam was walking with God in the cool of the day, and in the cool of the garden, and they were talking, and, and as they were giving the tour of the garden, Adam, God said to Adam, hey, that's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that. And then he comes back, and Eve sees what's going on, and so she's like, so uh, what were you, you guys talking about? <laughs> well, you know, this and that, and we we're just laying some ground rules and these are the things. Well, what, what did you say? <laughs> well, that the, every tree in the garden is really good to eat and you're welcome to eat any of them except this one particular tree, that tree over there, that, she said that tree. Yeah, that's the tree we're talking about where we're not allowed to eat it. Well, can we look at it? Well, yeah, you can look at it. It's okay, do I have to get it? But we, we, can, we, can we touch it? No, Eve, just just don't touch it, okay? <laughs> all right, just, Adam, you get perturbed at this point, and just says, all right, don't touch it. <laughs> don't eat it, don't touch it, don't, don't even look at it. That's, that's the rule now. And so now Eve, in her conversation with the serpent, says, no, we're not allowed to touch it. It's probably Adam's fault that she added that. <laughs> then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, here's our verse that we're going to focus on. So when the woman saw, keyword, that the tree was good for food, she saw that it was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, I want to feed my appetite, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes and that the tree made, the tree, and a tree desirable to make one wise, that's the pride of light. She took it and ate its fruit. She also gave it to her husband with her and ate. So from the very fall in the garden, we see Satan's playbook. And she, her eyes are open and she falls you know, subject to it. She saw that it was good for food. We we're going to satiate our appetite. We're going to take care of our flesh. She saw it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She, she saw that it was pleasant to the eye to look upon the fruit. It was pleasing to our eye gate. Those that We have gates that we allow into our soul, if you would, and one of them is our eye gate, those things we gaze upon. And it was pleasing to look at, and so it was lustful in that way. And that it would make one wise. I'm proud of myself for it wise. That's the pride of life. Tracking with me so far? Flip forward, oh, about eight or ten, twelve books to Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 11. Another example of Satan's playbook. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're looking at King David as he gazes upon Bathsheba. Okay? We know the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring uh, of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. I'm out there for just a second. At the time when kings went out to battle, David stays home. When it's time to fight, he chose not to. First mistake, okay? Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Lust of the eyes. Wow, look at her. Lust of the eyes. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, lust of the flesh, satiating his sexual appetite now. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David said to Joab, saying, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And that's the pride of life. We know that David ends up murdering Uriah because he's making an attempt to cover for his sin. That's the pride of life. I'm not going to own up to my sin. I'm going to rather try to cover it up because I don't want to be humiliated. That's the pride of life. I'm going to I'm going to stand for myself here. And so we say David, King David, the man after God's own heart, fall to these three temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. One more place to look, Matthew chapter 4. The big showdown between Jesus and Satan. After Jesus has been tempted 40 days in the desert. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Tracking with me? Everybody with me? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You think? Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus, take care of your flesh. You're hungry. Go ahead and satiate the lust of the flesh. Make these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Second temptation. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Hey Jesus, just... Go ahead and, and, and jump off the pinnacle. They'll take care of you. Your life will be protected. The pride of life. The great temptation here is the pride of life. And Jesus said to him, verse 7, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up, now the third temptation, on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him, he word all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. He shows him everything, hoping to attract Jesus to, through the lust of the eyes. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered. To him, so in the fall of the garden we see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In the great King David, we see him fall to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see Jesus or Satan attempt to to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is Satan's playbook. The best part is, as what we just read in Matthew, Jesus here gives us our victory defense to Satan's playbook. No matter how the attack comes, if it's in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, no matter what the attack is, the proper defense is the word of God. Jesus responds all three times with the word of God. The right defense is to abide in his word to live in His Word, to know His Word, to have it written on the tablets of your heart, to understand it, to absorb it, to abide in it, to live in it, to soak in it, to breathe in it. You get the idea. John addressed earlier the three levels of maturity. You little children, you young ones, and you fathers in the faith. And though you can't formulate this exactly... In each of those levels of maturity, it seems as though there is a greater emphasis of attack. When we're little children in the faith, or even when we're little children in life, we abide by the lust of the flesh. All I know as a little child is my appetite. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I have a cookie? 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 cookie? Until they fall asleep. Because they're satiating the lust of the flesh. That's a child's life. As we grow a little bit and we mature a little bit and we go from being a little child to a youth, what happens? Well, as a little child, you don't like the opposite sex because they've got cooties. As you become a little older, you like cooties. <laughs> right? I think I could like her cooties. <laughs> and it becomes the lust of the eyes. Our eyes are opened as we grow in the faith a little bit. And and we are tempted by the lust of our eyes. We're able to control our appetites just a little bit better. But then as we mature in the faith and become fathers, probably our greatest downfall would be the pride of life. I made cooties. <laughs> I walked uphill both ways to have my cookies. <laughs> Look at me. I remember at one point in my life, I think as Pastor Dave was teaching through this, Daddy. that I was like, oh, I don't really struggle with the pride of life. I'm pretty humble. And then I'm like, just that statement alone is the pride of life. <laughs> but I remember thinking, I wish you would make an example of me. I've got this one licked. That's the pride of life. you know." Is, is, Dave, use me as an example. No, that's the pride of life. The proper defense is the word of God. He says in verse 17, and this is where we'll end today, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, and the idea of the language there is—it's not going to pass away. It already is passing away, and we know that to be true, right? The, as you grow older, and the, as you grow older, the the things that used to be in places, and you know, they aren't there anymore. And just we 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 go from we decompose, right? We fall apart. I've been laying hardwood floor all week long and I tried to get up out of bed this week, this morning, and I was like... Oh, for 20 minutes. I didn't want to get up. Well, first of all, I woke up with a cramp in my leg, and that was no fun either. So, we know this world is passing away. We know that to be true. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What a fantastic word. He who does the will of God abides forever. The kingdom of this world is fading away, but the kingdom of God is eternal. And so I close today with the question, what kingdom are you a part of? Because John told us, we can't be in both kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of this world, which is fading away, or you're in the kingdom of God, which is eternal. Which reminded me of probably my favorite choral piece of music. I grew up singing in choirs, and as I was writing this out this morning, this song came to mind, and it's simply Handel's Messiah. I'm sure you know it. For some reason, a tradition started. Handel wrote this majestic worship service called Handel's Messiah. It is a worship service. Just just to sit and listen through it all. It's scripture after scripture after scripture, and in fact, the Hallelujah Chorus is Revelation chapter 17 verse 11. That's—I'm that's, pretty sure that's the verse it is. If you're, if you're it's Hallelujah, right? I learned the tenor part when I was in uh, in choir, and I still remember it to this day. I love Handel's Messiah. When it comes, it's in the middle of the Messiah, or where the Hallelujah Chorus is in the middle of the Messiah. The Messiah. When it comes, everybody stands up. It's just like, everybody does it. That's just what you do when the hallelujah chorus comes on. It's, it's. I, I don't know why it started, but everybody does. I was watching videos of it this morning. They stand up. It just happens. The entire song is written in forte, which if you're not familiar with music, what that means is loud. Right? The, 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 the violins start, and, and it, from the very first hallelujah, it's supposed to shock you how loud it is. Except one line the entire song is forte except one line at one point and it's it's giving me chills thinking about it they bring the music way down and then the choir sings this one line the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our lord and with the style of music handel demonstrates this world is fading away but the word of god is eternal the kingdom of this world. Say it quietly. Why? Because it's fading away. And then the trumpets, you know, rile up and, 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 but the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it, it knocks you over. Right, look it up if, you, if you're not familiar with it. It's just a phenomenal piece of music. And it gives me chills the way Handel decided to write it. Yeah, the kingdom of this world. Let's, let's walk away from it. Let's no longer parlay to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the heart of life. Let's abide in his kingdom. And let's live his way. Why? Because he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. Amen? Amen. Let's stay and Let's close. listen to this, and perhaps today you said, I'm not of the kingdom of God, I am of the kingdom of the world, and you see that you need to make a change, today is the day that you can, for today is the day of salvation, and it's a matter of recognizing that Jesus came to forgive you of your sins, placing your faith in the finished work of the cross, and making Jesus your Savior and Lord. If you want to take that step today, I would encourage you to do so by praying to For those of us who are walking in faith already, may we remember, be it we are little children or youth or fathers in the faith, that we know him and that is our strength. God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out upon the cross. Thank you that you do reign forever and ever and You are the King of kings, and You are the Lord of lords. And that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And I pray that we would no longer satiate the appetites of the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For those are are of the kingdom of this world, which is fading away. But rather, we would live and leverage everything that we have, our time, and our talent, and our treasure to glorify the the kingdom that will last forever, to glorify the King. We close by singing, I love you, Lord, and I pray that we do more than just sing it. I pray with our lives we would show it. ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord. Thank you for coming today. God bless you. Have a good Sunday. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.